Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.com. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we come this morning seeking to know you more. God, help us by your spirit to be honest this morning with you, with ourselves, so that we can rest and enjoy your amazing mercy. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Carl Menninger is one of the most well-known American psychiatrists of the 20th century. Uh, As a matter of fact, he had uh, President Jimmy Carter present him a Medal of Freedom for his work in psychiatry. Um, He even had a a school at a university named after him, the College of Psychiatry, which if you have a school named after you, means you've done pretty good. You're pretty influential. Well, in 1973, Menninger, uh, who's also an alum of UW-Madison, published a book entitled, Whatever Became of Sin? And in the book, Dr. Menninger claims that many of people's issues today, whether it be depression or gloom or discouragement, are prevalent because the word sin has almost completely disappeared from our vocabulary. And although the word sin may have disappeared from our vocabulary, the reality of guilt remains upon us, upon us, quite possibly because sin has disappeared from our vocabulary. Menninger believes that the recognition of the reality of sin offers the suffering a real hope. You know, in our culture, we give sin softer names. Instead of calling perversion sin, we call it an alternative lifestyle or that boys will be boys. Instead of calling coveting sin, we call it ambition or drive. Instead of calling manipulation sin, we call it savvy or business sense. Instead of calling gossip sin, we call it a prayer request or seeking advice. I have a pastor friend here in town who once told me that he doesn't talk about sin in a church service because he doesn't want to scare people away. You know, while we might scoff or scoff at a culture that softens sin and preachers that refuse to mention sin, I think if we were honest, all of us would say sin is not something that is that fun to talk about. But it is essential that we talk about sin First and foremost, because the Bible talks about sin, but we have to talk about sin because if we do not talk about sin, if we ignore the reality of sin, we will be trapped under the guilt of sin. You see, sin is kind of like the word cancer. No one likes to say cancer, talk about cancer. But like cancer, if we do not acknowledge sin and detect sin and diagnose sin, then it will kill us from the inside out whether we talk about it or not. 
Friends, we need to acknowledge our sin as sin, not only for the sake of honesty, but so that we might practice and experience real repentance and the amazing mercy and grace of God. If you would, please open up to Daniel chapter 9. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. And it will be page 743 on the Red Bible. Uh, if you're new with us, the book of Daniel is a story about how Daniel and his fellow countrymen have been exiled from Jerusalem and the region of Judah uh, all the way over to, to, the, to the capital city of Babylon. And while they're in the capital city of Babylon, Daniel is under the authority of the Babylonian Empire. And the Babylonian Empire, when we get to, Roman, to Daniel chapter 9, has just fallen and the Medo-Persian Empire has taken over. And so it's in that context that Daniel um, writes Daniel chapter 9. I want to start just by looking at the first two verses here. Daniel 9 verse 1 and 2 says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books uh, the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So what we see here in these first two verses is that Daniel is doing his devotional time. And he's getting into God's word and he calls Je Jeremiah, who, who's a contemporary or lived around the same time as Daniel, uh, as, as he calls the, the letter that Jeremiah wrote, the word of the Lord. He believes that it is God's word. And so he is doing his devotional time. He is reading God's word. And Daniel has this aha moment. Daniel is reading Jeremiah and he realizes that one of God's great promises to his people in exile is about to come due. We read about this in Jeremiah 29 verse 10. It says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. That is to the promised land. Now, Daniel has been in exile for 66 years. So if you can do the math, 70 minus 66 is about four years, probably three or four years until this promise is going to be fulfilled. And so Daniel is excited. He is elated. He is overjoyed. But he also realizes that they must prepare to go back to the promised land. They must be ready for what God is going to do. And so Daniel leads the people of God in this corporate or, or community prayer of repentance before God. And Daniel records this prayer so that it might serve as a template for the people of God in his time, but also for the people of God in our time of what real repentance looks like. And so we're going to look at this prayer of repentance from Daniel and look and see in our own lives and practice real repentance. The first thing we see here is that real repentance owns our sin. Look at verse 3 and 4 with me. He says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. That's a posture of grieving and remorse. I prayed to the Lord my God and made a confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Do you notice how Daniel's prayer of confession of sin begins? 
It actually does not begin with him. It begins with who God is. You see, real repentance begins with a right understanding of God. And do you see what Daniel says here? Daniel says that God is great and awesome. Now, the fact that God is awesome doesn't mean that he is totally tubular. That's not what Daniel is saying. By great and awesome, he's saying, God, you are mighty. You are powerful. You are not to be trifled with. I love how the King James Version puts it. It says, the great and dreadful God. This means when we come before God in prayer, not only are we coming before our Father, we are coming before the judge of the entire universe. We are coming before the God who who holds the world in his hand, a God who with just a twitch of his pinky finger can smite us. And so we should come before him with reverence and fear and trembling. A right understanding of God tells us that he is great and awesome. It also shows us as he continues, he says, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now we know that it's not saying that, that God will keep his covenant love to those who perfectly obey God. And the reason we know this is because we are in a prayer of repentance in which Daniel is repenting over all of the ways that he and the people of God have failed God and been unfaithful to God. But what it's saying here is that those who seek to pursue the Lord, those who seek to put sin to death and follow the ways of the Lord, those who prove themselves to be people of God, God will keep his steadfast covenant love promises to them. God has bound himself to them. And so in this context, grasping the reality that God is great and awesome and dreadful, but also a covenant-keeping and loving God. In this context, Daniel feels the freedom to confess sin in a posture of real repentance. Just a side note, if you ever have noticed in our, in our, uh, in our bulletin, we have an order of worship. And we start our order of worship with adoration. And the reason why we do this is because we want to start our worship service with reminding ourselves of who God is. And as it comes next is a confession of sin because as we dwell and think about how great and awesome and terrifying and wonderful and loving and faithful God is, it reminds us that we are not so wonderful, that we are not so great, that we are not so faithful. And so we confess our sin before God. And that's what Daniel does here. Verse 5, he says, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. You know, this world will tell you that the way that we differentiate right and wrong is by following our heart. Whatever we feel, that's what we should do. If we feel it's right, we should do that. If we feel it's wrong, we should do that. But Daniel makes it very clear here that that's not how we determine right from wrong. We do wrong when we violate God's word. As a matter of fact, it's our hearts that often lead us astray to deceive, to, 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 What's the word I'm looking for? To disobey God's word. Jeremiah 17 puts it this way. The heart is deceitful above all things, above everything, and desperately sick. Our hearts are corrupt. They are wicked. They are dishonest. And so we cannot judge right from wrong by our hearts, but by turning to the word of God. And so it's so important that we are in God's word to know right from wrong so that we can say, Lord, whatever my heart says, please correct it with your word. So that we can follow your commands and your rules, which are perfect and good. 
Now, who is guilty of sin? Who is guilty of violating God's word? Verse 6 through 7. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away. He's saying everyone is guilty. It says, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says something very similar, quoting the scriptures. He says, none is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one has done good, not even one. All of us are guilty of sin. And I love Daniel's honesty here. He doesn't say, you know what? Uh, it was a minor oversight. Lord, sorry that we disobeyed that command. He doesn't say, you know, um, we just weren't thinking straight at this time. He says, no, our sin is treachery. He's broken by his sin. He's contrite over his sin. So much so that he puts on sackcloth and ashes and is grieving and weeping over his sin. He acknowledges the sinfulness and ugliness of sin. And then he continues in verse 8 through 11 and kind of summarizes everything that we've just looked at. He says, To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets, All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. You know, everything that we read in this prayer of Daniel is a template for us of what real repentance looks like. But what might be as important as what Daniel does say in this prayer is what Daniel doesn't say in this prayer. Can you see how Daniel is owning the sin? He is saying the mess we are in is because of our own fault. It's because of our own sin. He doesn't say, Lord, uh, I'm sorry, but what about this? What about that? What about this guy who did that? What about when you put us in that situation? Daniel owns his sin. He doesn't shift the blame. You know, this is something that we are so prone to do. At least I know I am. Maybe you're not. But I'm so prone to shift my sin towards other people. I'll give you an example, kind of a silly example. But the other, I think it was earlier this week, uh, my family, we were getting our food ready for dinner. We have a dining room in our kitchen. We have an island and we put the food out there and we go and we get our food and then we go to the dining room, sit down, we pray, and then we eat. And so the food is out and uh, we open up a brand new jar of pickles. And uh, if you know me, you know I heart pickles. I love pickles. Pickles are awesome. But, uh, but so I open up a brand new jar of pickles and it's one of those tall slender jars, not like a short squatty one, but tall and slender. And uh, one of my kids who's on the other side of the island stands on his tiptoes, reaches over with the fork and puts his fork into the pickle jar, spears a pickle. And as he's pulling it back, the whole jar tips over and pickle juice goes everywhere. And just as an immediate reaction, I say, what the heck are you doing? Except I don't say heck. I say H-E double hockey sticks, which I didn't say H-E double hockey sticks anywhere. But you know what I'm saying? 
I, I, I'm angry. I'm mad. And, and so one of my kids, and kids are great accountability partners, aren't they? One of my kids says, Dad, why did you say a bad word? And my first thought is, well, the thing that I said was, well, if so-and-so wasn't so reckless, I wouldn't have said that word, right? You see how immediately I jumped to shifting the blame to somebody else. Now, I know we may say, you know, cussing is not that big of a deal, but God's word tells us something different. He says, put away obscene talk from your mouth. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, that it may give grace to those who hear. I can guarantee you my words did not build up the other people, and it did not give grace to the other people. And instead of owning my sin and repenting of my sin, I blame shifted my sin. I'm curious, who do you blame for the sin in your life? Maybe you blame your kids. I'm irritable because of them. I'm angry because of them or your spouse. Maybe you blame your boss who just doesn't understand what you're going through. Maybe, and I do this, maybe you even blame God. Maybe you say, Lord, if you didn't put me in this situation, I wouldn't respond this way. Lord, if you, didn't, if you didn't make me with this propensity towards this sin, I wouldn't struggle with it, God. And so in some ways we say, you know, I'm sorry, God, but you did this, you did that. There's a but in our, there's a but in our repentance. And so we are blame shifting even in our confession. And what we see in this passage from Daniel, what's so important for us to see is that we must own our sin and repentance with no ifs, ands, or buts, without shifting it to someone else. You know what? No one else can make you sin. No one else can make you sin. And so you have to own your own sin and confess it to God. Now, I want to do something a little bit different here. I actually want to take a minute for you to practice this. Can you practice it? Not out loud, that would be awkward, uh, but, but in the silence of your heart, can you go to God, can you confess your sin without any ifs, ands, or buts, and own it and say, this is because of me, all right? So let's do that. We'll take a moment now. Real repentance owns our sinfulness and does not blame others. Real repentance also acknowledges God's punishment, specifically that God's punishment for our sin is right and just and fair. Daniel already started to do this in verse 7 and 8. If you saw that, we can read together again. Verse 7 says, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you, God, you have driven them. Because why? Because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law, and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice, and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. Okay, now what is Daniel talking about? He says here that the curse and the oath 
that, that's written in the law of Moses is being poured out upon them. What is he talking about here? Well, he's talking actually back to Leviticus chapter 26. You see, in Leviticus chapter 26, it takes place, it's written after God has brought his people out of the promised land. And I'm sorry, God has brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery and bondage. And so God delivers them miraculously, bringing the plagues upon them, parting the Red Sea, crushing the Egyptian army, setting them free. And God says to them, listen, I'm going to be taking you to a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And if you worship me and you obey me and you follow me in this land, I will bless you and bless you and bless you. I will bless you so greatly that all the world, all the nations around will look at you and say, whose God is their God that they are so blessed? says, I will do this to you if you obey me and follow me. But if you chase after other gods, if you violate my commandments then I will bring destruction upon you. Your enemies will come and they will destroy the city and they will cast you throughout their empire. And that's exactly what has happened here. And so Daniel is saying, Lord, you have now fulfilled the promise that you made, that if we disobeyed you, that if we violated your commands, that if we chase after other gods, that you would send us out from our country and disperse us throughout the land. Daniel is saying, listen, I will... Just think about this. Think about if today, when you get home, someone shows up. They take you out of your house and they send you in a, to a faraway country, okay? Apart from your family, your friends are not there, your church is not there, your community is not there. How horrible would that be? That would be, that would be terrifying. And yet Daniel is saying, even though we have gone through all of this, Lord, your punishment fits the crime. You see, for hundreds of years, God was exhaustively patient with his people. For hundreds of years, he said, listen, put away those other gods and come back to me, the Lord God who loves you and cares for you and brought you out of bondage in Egypt. Come back to me. For hundreds of years, he warned them. And for hundreds of years, they rebelled. And so finally, God brings the punishment that he had promised for their disobedience. Verse 12 continues. It says, he has confirmed his word, which he spoke against us. Again, talking about Leviticus 26 and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there was not, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated or pleaded the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. Why has God brought the calamity in on us? For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O oh Lord, our God, who brought you, your people, out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. Again, Daniel is confessing not only their sin, but the punishment that God has brought because of their sin is completely just and completely fair. I remember a few years ago, I was driving out of Ted Fritch Park. If you've ever been there, it's kind of tucked back in a neighborhood. And as I was driving out, I was going back through the neighborhood to get to the main road. And I saw 
lights on behind me. And so I pulled over and a police officer got out and he came up to my truck. He said, you know why I pulled you over? And I had probably about 15 guesses why he pulled me over, but I wasn't sure which one he was talking about. So I'm like, no, I don't know. And uh, he said, well, you ran the, the stop sign at the end of the park. And I go, oh, oh, okay. Did I, did I slow down? And he goes, nope, not at all. I'm like, okay. I, I was guilty, right? Like I knew I had committed that crime. You know, even if I was ignorant of it, it still didn't matter. I was guilty of the crime. And so whatever punishment he would give to me, you know, I mean, not the gas chamber, but whatever punishment he gave to me would be fair according to the rules of the land, right? Whatever that fine would be. What is the penalty for our sin? What does our crime deserve? Well, the Bible tells us very clearly what our crime deserves, what our sin deserves. It says the wages of sin is death. It says the Lord destroys the wicked. Jesus himself says that we deserve eternal punishment to be thrown into the outer darkness, to go to the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is what Jesus says. It's a punishment for our crime. Revelation 21 goes on. It says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers. Remember, if you hate someone, you're guilty of murder, Jesus says. The sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. What does your sin deserve? eternal exile from the grace and love and mercy of God. You know, at our church, we have membership questions. And the first question says this, says, do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God? That was what we covered in the first main point. The answer is yes, we are guilty. We can't blame on anyone else. Justly deserving his displeasure. You see, here at Jacob's Well, to become a member of Jacob's Well, you actually have to confess that you deserve the wrath of God, that you deserve to be thrown into the lake of fire, that you deserve to be put away from the grace and the mercy of God. God's punishing us for our sin is not unfair. It is extremely fair, probably the fairest thing in the world. And so I want to take a moment just to, again, Take a minute just to acknowledge this in the silence of our hearts. Yes, we have sinned, and God, your just judgment is fair. So let's take a moment to do that. Real repentance owns our own sinfulness. No excuses, no blame shifting. Real repentance acknowledges God's punishment of our sin is right and just. So far now you may say, you know what, this is the worst sermon I've ever heard in my entire life. I don't like this sermon very much. But you know what? As long as... The more that we understand how bad the bad news is, the more we will understand how good the good news is. And in the Bible, it never ends with bad news. I know you may read a chapter in the Bible and be like, oh man, this is all bad news. Keep reading because the good news is coming. There's always good news at the end of the bad news in the Bible. And that's what we see here in this passage. That real repentance banks on God's mercy. Look at verse 16 with me. It says, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away 
from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. Now this next part of verse 18, the second half, circle it, highlight it, write it on your wall. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Did you hear that? You don't have to clean yourself up before you come to God. He says, we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Verse 19, oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel cries out, for mercy and restoration, not only because that's what they most need, but because God has promised to do so. Do you remember back in verse 2 of this chapter when Daniel remembered the promise of God that after 70 years he would restore them and draw them back to the land? That is a promise that God had given, and Daniel is praying according to that promise. Not only that, but do you remember in Leviticus 26 when we talked about how God gives, gives the terms of this agreement with his people? And he says, listen, if you follow me, I will bless you. If you run after other gods, I will punish you and I will cast you throughout the nations. You remember that? It doesn't end with that because the bad news always leads to the good news. Leviticus 26, when it continues, says this, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, this is what Daniel's doing, and their treachery, and they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled, and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. Daniel is praying for God to fulfill his covenant promises, to remember his people, to never leave or forsake his people, to forgive them for their sin when they confess it to him. You see, here's the thing. This is, this is just fascinating. Did you know that God is obligated to forgive you if you confess your sin to him? That he has to forgive you if you honestly, genuinely, really repent before him? He is obligated to do it. Not because of anything you have said or anything you have done, but because of the promises he has made. He has obligated himself to forgive you whenever you confess your sin. 1 John 1 puts it this way. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then verse 9, cling to this verse. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, this is a promise that we can take to the bank. There is no sin so great. There is no sin so repeated. There is no sin so ugly that God will not forgive you if you repent and turn to him. And so like Daniel, we must pray according to God's promises. We must pray for God to restore us and to forgive us as he has promised to do when we turn to him. 
So that membership question, number one, it was all bad news, but again, it gets to the good news. I'll read it again. It says, do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God? Yes, that was main point one. Justly deserving his displeasure. Yes, that was main point two. And without hope, except for his sovereign mercy. It is mercy and only his promise mercy that we can bank on for the forgiveness of sins when we come repenting before a holy God. Real repentance banks on God's mercy. Verse 20 through 23. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I've come to tell it to you. For you are greatly loved. We got to make sure that we don't skip over this too quickly. Gabriel tells Daniel. And through Daniel, he tells us that when we cry out to God in prayer, when we go to the God of the universe, he's not too busy for us. He hears our prayers. He listens to our prayers. And not only does he forgive us by his mercy, but he loves us by his grace. Did you notice when Daniel confesses his sin to God, it says a word came out from heaven. Do you know what word God wants to tell you when you confess your sin to him? When you come to God and you reveal how ugly you are on the inside, how how dark your heart is, how sinful you have been, how wicked you are, when you come and you share the most humiliating things in the world to God, do you know what God wants to say to you? It's not, hey, I can't believe I put up with you. That's not what he wants to say. God doesn't say, I'm going to make you pay for this. He doesn't say, go to time out. God has a word for you if you come and confess your sin. And do you know what that word is that comes down from heaven for you? Right here, verse 23. You are greatly loved. You are the beloved of God. God delights in you. Can we stand in all of this for a minute? That when we share how ugly we are, God says, I love you. Why do people think the God of the Old Testament is this old, cranky, mean guy? When we confess our sin, he says, I have a word. My word is that I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. When you confess your sin to God, he wants you to know that you are his beloved, that he delights in you. This is mercy. Last week I was watching... I noticed I have a lot of TV references in the sermon, but last week I was watching a documentary on Mr. Rogers. And to be honest with you, I didn't watch Mr. Rogers a whole lot growing up, but he's still just kind of an icon of, of you know, certain decades of, of my history. And so I was interested by, by, this, uh, by this documentary. And one of the things I just grew to really admire about him, other than he was also a Presbyterian minister, which I thought was pretty cool. But one of the things I really admired about him is that when he sat with people, he would look them in the eyes and he would, he would listen to them and he would treat them as 
They were the most valuable person in the entire world. If you remember the show, you know this is true. And certainly it was tied back to his beliefs that all of us are created in the image of God and so created with dignity and worth and value. But he would just sit with kids and he would hear kids and he would answer kids. One particular episode, probably one of the most famous times, he was there with a boy in a wheelchair named Jeff. It was a situation that probably would have made many of us feel uncomfortable if we were honest. And Minister Roger sits down to this boy, Jeff, and he says, hey, Jeff. I'm so glad to see you. And he talks to him and, again, doesn't break eye contact. He's just locked in with this boy, Jeff. And he ends his time by singing over the boy about how he likes him and how he loves him. You know, it's so interesting. In this documentary, it says, listen, if you took what the best practices were for TV, like what the best best practices were to put on a great TV show, if you took those best practices and you did the exact opposite, you would have Mr. Rogers, right? That's, that's what the show, it was slow. Um, there was lots of silence in it. The props were probably, a, could have been bought at the dollar store, right? He, he wore a sweat, like he changed his shoes. This is entertainment. But kids were riveted by this. They were drawn to it because they wanted to know there was someone out there who would listen to them and who loved them. Friends, I have good news for you. There is someone greater than Mr. Rogers, the Lord God. When we cry out to him, he hears our prayers. He pours out his love upon us. God loves us just the way we are, sin and all. He's not in love with a future version of you. He is in love with you today, and he even likes you. He says, come to me. He loves you just the way you are. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to him. He loves you just the way you are. But he loves you so much that he doesn't want to leave you just the way you are. He wants to help bring you out of the self-destructive sin in your life. God works towards restoration in our lives. And that's what we see as we move forward. Now, before I read the rest of this passage, I'll just let you know that the rest of this passage is, is highly debated among Christians. It's a prophecy and, uh, and, and there's many different views of how it's fulfilled. I'll tell you a couple of the different views. But um, just to let you know, in the next three minutes, we're not going to figure it out. But here we go. Verse 23, second half, says, Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgressions, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks." Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decree's end is poured out on the desolator. Okay, there's a lot there. 
I'll just share with you very briefly, there are three views of how this is fulfilled as they take the 70 years or the 70 times seven days and 62 and things like that. Some people, there's three major views. One view is that this is applying and fulfilled uh, by Antiochus IV, who we talked about last week, who came, desecrated the temple, and then the temple was restored. Other people believe that this is referring to the first coming of Christ and the destruction is referring to when Christ returns the second time. Uh, a third group of people believe that this is referring to the first coming of Christ also but and his sacrificial works, but thinks it refers to the destruction to when the temple is destroyed in 70 ADs. I'm not sure which is right. I'm not even sure which one I believe, to be honest with you. But, but what I want to point out here is the, the language of this prophecy, how, how the, the language of this prophecy has echoes of the good news of the gospel. In verse 25, it says, there's a coming of an anointed one, a prince. And that anointed one shall be cut off, in verse 27, and put an end to sacrifice and offering. All of these are echoes of the good news of the gospel that are to come. There was an anointed one coming. Anointed means Messiah, which means Christ. There was a Christ coming, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's anointed by God and sent to bring us peace. Therefore, he is the Prince of Peace. And that anointed one, Jesus Christ, would be cut off. This is what our sins deserve, what we deserve, to be cut off from the love of God in relationship with God. It's what justice demands. But the good news is that Christ takes on our cut offness upon the cross when he is cut off from God by our sins. And finally, it says he put an end to sacrifice and suffering. We no longer need to offer sacrifices for sin, whether that be an animal on an altar or it be our own, our own uh, penitence or whatever it might be, because our sin has been paid in full upon the cross. Hebrews 10 puts it this way. It says, we have been sanctified. That means we have been made cleansed. We have been purified. We have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. For every priest stands daily in his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Again, I was watching a clip. It seems like this is a TV sermon. I was watching a clip of a TV show in which uh, there were these three students from UT Austin. And the announcer told them, much to their surprise, that their tuition was going to be paid for by some company. You can imagine how elated they were, right? Like they're jumping up and down. They were crying. They're so excited because their debt has been paid. There, there's no more debt for them to pay. As a matter of fact, they couldn't pay the debt even if they wanted to pay the debt. Friends, we have better news than that. Our debt is far greater than a college tuition. Our debt is the wrath and punishment of God for all eternity, and yet it has been paid in full by Christ upon the cross. Menninger asked, whatever became of sin? For the Christian... Our sin has been nailed to the cross and it has been paid in full so that we can bank on the mercy of God for all eternity. Let me end with this. And I'm a little bit over, I apologize. But a few years ago at the General Assembly, which is the highest level of our denomination, um, 
there was a group of people that wanted to put forth a public paper that would uh, be a public form of repentance for the sin of the denomination in terms of racism and, and con- confessing the racism that's in the history of our denomination and, and grieving over it and lamenting over it and repenting it. And some of, the, some of the men of the denomination did not want to sign that document. They didn't want to issue that document. And the reason wasn't necessarily because they were racist. It wasn't necessarily because they were denying that these things happened in the past in our denomination and that they're horrific. But, but some of the men did not want to sign it because they said, listen, why are we confessing other people's sins? Like we should just confess our own sin. We don't need to confess their sin But when you look at Daniel chapter 9, I don't know if you noticed this, but there is a corporate communal nature in which Daniel is including not only himself, but also his forefathers. He says, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked. We have turned away. We have not listened. We are covered in shame. We have rebelled. We have not obeyed. We have sinned against you. We have not sought the favor. We have not obeyed. We have sinned. We have done wrong. Church, it is certainly good to go to God one-on-one on prayer. Daniel got caught doing that, and he got sent to the lion's den. That is a very good thing to do. But we are also called to pray as a community, as a people of God together. And so today we're going to give you that opportunity. Again, we're doing things a little bit different. But after the service, we're actually going to have a prayer station by the two exit doors, okay? And there's going to be someone there who wants to pray with you. And so, you know, you you can't get this on Amazon, right? Like you can get anything on Amazon, but you can't get this on Amazon. Take advantage of it. If you have something to praise God for, they want to pray and praise God with you. If you want to, if you want to, if you have a burden on your heart, you want someone to pray for it, they would love to do that. Please go and do that. If you say, you know what, I'm finally overwhelmed by my sin and I want to trust in Christ for my salvation, they'd love to pray that with you as well. And so please feel free to take advantage of that. Real repentance owns our sin without excuse. It affirms God's punishment as right and just. But it also banks on God's mercy by looking to the cross and trusting that in Christ it has been paid in full. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your grace and mercy in Christ. We are so undeserving and yet you love us so much. It is beyond comprehension, God. Lord, we fail to believe your love so often and we chase after other things to get satisfaction for our souls. Help us, Lord, to turn to you, God. Lord, as we turn to your table, nourish us in our faith. Remind us of the grace of Christ and the cross. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.